Clinics, the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine podcast. Thanks for downloading the September podcast. This month, we'll get an insight into the deadly Ebola outbreak in West Africa from the man who discovered the virus. It has already killed more people than all other epidemics together. How the antibiotic resistance risks plunging the world back into the dark ages of medicine. I think the worst case scenario is so much resistance in the population that we do become to a point where you can't use anything. There is just no treatment at all. And how a new biobank that researchers at the school have set up aims to help people with ME or chronic fatigue syndrome. The people who are sickest with this disease do not have the strength to advocate for themselves. The deadly outbreak of Ebola in West Africa continues to claim thousands of lives, with a real risk of it spreading to neighbouring countries. The virus was co-discovered in 1976 by Professor Peter Peart, who is now the director of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Peter talked to us about the current outbreak and his views on the international efforts to control it. The epidemic in West Africa is the 25th known outbreak of Ebola infection. It's the first one in West Africa and it's by far the largest. It has already killed more people than all other epidemics together. And it came as a surprise to me, indeed, because all previous epidemics uh, were quite limited in time and in place were around one centre, affecting usually fairly small villages or small towns, and would die out basically after fairly classic isolation and quarantine methods. In this case, it's different. It's a perfect storm. A perfect storm because what you see is a combination of a virus that is hiding somewhere in the forest, probably bats, we don't know for sure, and where people are, through growing population, are more and more exposed to, to what's going on in forests, through deforestation and so on. Decades of civil war, corrupt regime, which means that there's no trust in authorities, a completely dysfunctional health system. Let's not forget that in Liberia, there is about one doctor per 100,000 population. And in the meantime, several of them have died from Ebola, just as in about 150 nurses, because they're the front line. We have also a distrust in Western medicine, very strong traditional beliefs in terms of disease causation, traditional funeral rites, which require that the whole family touches the body and has a meal in the presence of the, the, the dead person. And then I should say also a very slow response from both the uh, national authorities and from the international community, from WHO, which declared only in August a state of uh, public health emergency. Fortunately, now things have uh, really greatly improved in terms of leadership from WHO, and, uh, but until then it was basically Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders, which was the main actor on, on the ground. And then increased mobility of people. Borders are very porous, they're going back to colonial times and not natural type of borders, and, uh, and that's how it, uh, how it spread then. So do you think that the international community should have done something different? Well, I think we were all far too, uh, too late, and, and, and even today with a much enhanced uh, international uh, support and national response, 
we are still running behind the virus. And every day, with every day the epidemic is getting bigger, it's more difficult to control it. Because if an epidemic is uh, confined to one place and maybe affects or about 10,000 or, or even 100,000 people, you can put that area into quarantine, you can, you know, have contact tracing and so on. When entire countries, three countries are affected, that's becoming very, very difficult. Why is there still no cure for Ebola after, I mean, you've been working on it for, for decades and, and we see now these experimental treatments that are just starting to be rolled out? Thanks to investments by the, particularly the Department of Defense in the U.S., after the anthrax scare, and so as part of a anti-bioterrorism program, a few vaccines have been developed, and then also one in Canada, and some experimental drugs. But then funding dried up. Ebola up to now has never been a real public health issue. I mean, an epidemic comes and goes, and 50 people die, and so on, compared to malaria, uh, HIV, uh, maternal mortality, diarrhea, and so on. I mean, basically nothing. And there's also no market for it. So there is no uh, investment, and, and I, I fully understand that, because there are bigger priorities. But now, because of this epidemic, Jeremy Farrar, the director of the Wellcome Trust, and David Heyman, the chair of Public Health England, and a professor here, and myself, we launched an appeal in the Wall Street Journal and say we must accelerate evaluation of these experimental vaccines and also offer some of these drugs for palliative uh, use because with a mortality rate of 80-90%, you can have other standards for trying out drugs than for something where people don't die of. So I'm, I'm really very, very pleased that uh, WHO is taking leadership and has declared in, uh, through its ethics uh, committee that this is ethically justified, called a meeting to coordinate efforts, the Wellcome Trust and the MRC and DFIT have joined efforts to, you know, to fund trials. So things are moving now, but it may be too late for this current epidemic. For treatment, I think we have some low-hanging fruit, and that is plasma or serum from people who recovered from uh, Ebola virus infection, because classically in an infectious disease, when you recover, you have very high levels of antibody in your blood. And we know from hemorrhagic fevers in Latin America that such convalescent plasma or serum really uh, reduces mortality enormously. For Ebola, this has never been proven, although it has been used in um, 95 on uh, eight patients and seven survived, so that suggests that it may work. And, and that work can start immediately because there are... Despite all the deaths, there are quite a few people who survived. So that's work that should start within the next few weeks. And then we have other drugs that can be uh, evaluated so that control measures will you know, bear fruit ultimately. But we are not there yet. That was the director of the school, Professor Peter Peart. And you can hear an extended version of that interview on our website at lshtm.ac.uk. The London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine podcast. The development of antibiotics has added an average of 20 years to our life. Yet the rise of antimicrobial resistance is threatening to make them ineffective. 
This poses a significant future risk as common infections become untreatable. The UK Prime Minister recently warned that the world could be cast back into the dark ages of medicine unless action is taken to tackle the growing threat of resistance to antibiotics. So how much of a ticking time bomb is this threat? And what can be done to overcome this potential disaster? Dr Richard Stabler, who's a senior lecturer in bacterial microbiology at the school, told us more. There are many reasons why we're in this uh, situation now, in part because we have only a limited arsenal of antibiotics now. We haven't had any new ones for ages. The misuse of the antibiotics we actually have, the expectation of public that they must have drugs and things whenever they're ill, you know, you must have something to treat it even if it's not appropriate. So this would be, you know, having a viral infection and insisting on having antibiotics which would have no use at all. There is the misuse of antibiotics say within veterinary as well there's a lot of antibiotics in there so the same antibiotics that we'd use to treat human infection can be used to treat animal infections and if we're not used appropriately then you can start breeding resistance by selecting for organisms that are resistant to these antibiotics and so once they're resistant to one you then treat with a different antibiotic and, and you can go through the same cycle again again selecting for strains or substrains that have resistance to the antibiotic and so thus over time you, you basically run out of options. So it sounds like the misuse is an overuse of the antibiotics. Yes that's partly it I mean they've, they've been such a magic bullet you know to treat all these in, infections that it's it's been so nice to, to just take an antibiotic but it's in part that when people have a course, save of antibiotics, they don't take it to end. And so although they feel much better and the majority of the infections has gone, there's a, a little bit left. And they're the ones that possibly have some drug resistance and they're allowed to then multiply up again. We've also got problems with travel and so importation of strains from, from foreign climes where they may not have such a strict laws on antibiotic use. So, for example, you've got to get a prescription in this country to get antibiotics. But I know from trips abroad to places like India or Peru and things like that that you can just go to the chemist and buy whatever you feel like. So long as you've got the money, you can buy it and then you can treat yourself which if you think you've got an infection, you could, but maybe you can only afford a couple of tablets. Some people go and buy just a couple of tablets and just try and treat the infection with that. And also in a lot of these regions, there's a lot of fake drugs or weak drugs. So you, you think you're buying a lot of strong antibiotic, but in fact you're getting very little antibiotic or, or, or perhaps something else. And, and this has all led to these resistant strains, these highly resistant strains. And then obviously because it's, it's you know, the global travel of people, anything that starts somewhere else quite quickly arrives in this country as well. So where does the fault lie? Is it a financial issue? Is it a social issue? Is it, is it a scientific problem we can't overcome? Who's to blame? <laughs> I wouldn't like to point any, a finger at anyone in particular. Um, people are saying there's been a failure of big business not to invest in, in new antibiotics. I must admit, I do understand that there's no profit in these, in these drugs. It's, it, there's a lot more profit, say, in anti-cancer drugs, so you can understand why they're focused there. We have lots of what we call neglected diseases because they're not necessarily Western diseases, so that, again, there's no profit. But there's also the... The antibiotics that we do have, the sort of misuse of them and not the antibiotic stewardship, as they talk about, we've kind of, you know, we haven't really looked after these tools that we had. So it's partly to do with the lack of investment, partly to do with how we've used them, and also perhaps it's all to do with the, the public perception of we must have antibiotics when we're ill, even if it's not appropriate. In, in layman's terms, can you talk about how uh, a bacteria actively 
fights against the antibiotic. You know, is this kind of just a, a beautiful sense or a macabre sense of evolution in action? Oh, yeah, definitely. It's evolution in action. Um, you put on a strong evolutionary selective pressure. So if you wipe out all the competitors, but one bacteria has a slight change, a slight mutation, which gives it enough advantage to just about to survive, then that one is the, can then reproduce and grow and all its progeny can then take on that and make that advantage a little bit more. But bacteria have many, many ways of defending themselves against antibiotics. So antibiotics come in many classes. Um, say some, for example, will destabilise the cell wall. So you get other proteins have evolved which can then block the binding site of those antibiotics. You find that the targets of certain antibiotics, they will change ever so slightly. So the binding site of the antibiotic is, is then removed so the antibiotic can no longer bind. And then you've also got some very general things, um, which we call efflux pumps, which basically, for the bacteria, pumps anything out of the cell it doesn't want. And this can be used against many antibiotics, just a case of pumping the stuff back out again before it causes damage to the cell. So we talk about apocalypse. Is this on, are we talking about on a scale of, of climate change, which everyone knows about, I've heard about, and, and we're kind of all aware of kind of the fears of global terrorism. Why aren't the public as concerned about this particular problem? Maybe because it hasn't, the message hasn't got out there. But saying that, the longitudinal prize was awarded to antibiotic resistance. So I think there is awareness and more awareness getting out there. And I think as people understand that, you know, you have an infection and you go for treatment and, and you get told basically it's untreatable, well, I think it's going to, as more and more people get that kind of diagnosis, it's going to really hit home that it's something that needs to be done and done very quickly. What would you say is the best case scenario and the worst case scenario? And where do you think we are? OK, so I think the best case scenario is that we've, that somebody with an infection, you'd be able to pick up very quickly what drugs were appropriate to treat that person and treat them until that infection is completely gone. So we could still use existing drugs while a new drug is coming to market. I think the worst case scenario is obviously all get so much resistance in, in the population that we do become to a point where you can't use anything. There is, there is just no treatment at all. I think we're somewhere in the middle. I think some infections are picking up this drug resistance much quicker than others. There is promise though, that we can have new and different uh, treatments that you know, will help us tackle some of these problems. We survived before the year of antibiotics. I think we'll, we'll carry on surviving even if antibiotics do get taken away from us. That was Richard Stabler. Imagine waking up one day with the flu. You feel terrible. You feel exhausted, feverish, sore throat, swollen glands, headache. And then imagine waking up every day of your life, day after day, month after month, and even year after year, feeling that terrible. That is what it's like to have ME, or chronic fatigue syndrome, for which there is currently no cure. Although some people will recover after a period of time, many will endure long-term disease and disability. And in about a quarter of cases, this can be severe enough to force the person to remain housebound or bedbound. As part of the International Centre for Evidence in Disability at the school, the Cure ME team's research has focused on improving recognition, diagnosis and treatment of ME and the development of the UK's first biobank of samples for research. We spoke to Erina Bowman to find out more about the biobank and the effects of the disease. So ME stands for myalgic encephalomyelitis. The disease is also known as CFS or chronic fatigue syndrome. 
And what it is is a long-term disabling medical condition predominated by chronic fatigue, but also with a whole other constellation of symptoms, such as pain, sleep disturbances, sore throat, swollen glands, headaches. And they can be quite debilitating and lifelong. This was something which was recognised in fairly recent history, wasn't it? Well, actually, there have been outbreaks of disease um, that have been recorded dating back to about the 30s. So this is not a new disease. The name has changed over time, but the entity has existed. And my, my guess is that in the next decade or so, the name will change again as uh, different subtypes are identified. How does one recognize so one problem that has really hobbled research and progress in this area is the lack of a definitive case definition. Um, we have an idea of what the disease is, and there are a number of different case definitions in use, some of which are broader in scope than others. So what we're trying to do with the research is find some biomarkers that we can clearly identify uh, patients as such and once we can do this, this will lend legitimacy to the disease that has historically been lacking. And it can also potentially help identify treatments. To describe what we do, I want to take a step back and talk about historically what has happened in this field. Because of the name CFS, or chronic fatigue syndrome, which sounds quite innocuous, the disease has not been taken seriously. And as a result of that, there have not been many funds made available for research. This has meant that scientists and researchers who are interested in looking at the disease have had to scrounge around for spare change, basically, uh, in order to get anything done. And this has meant a lot of underpowered studies um, with sometimes conflicting findings. So what we're trying to do to overcome that issue is develop a biobank. And we're collecting samples, blood samples, from people with the disease, ME-CFS, with multiple sclerosis, and from what we call healthy controls or healthy people. We're collecting samples from the same individuals over time. And we can look at changes in their disease over time. And we can start to try and correlate changes in their symptoms with what we see in their samples. And we will be looking for viruses, we'll be looking for immunological parameters and gene expression. What we're also trying to do is develop a pan-European and even international network of biobanks so that we can pool our resources and use the funds that we do have most efficiently and effectively. So how are people treated at the moment? I think that the situation has been improving but people still face an enormous amount of stigma and ridicule in their daily lives. Can you give me a for instance? Do you know people who suffer from ME? I think there's a lot of disbelief as to this disease's severity or even its existence. So this disease can strike at any time, but it does quite often tend to strike young people at the most productive time of their lives. Is this purely a Western disease or is it something that happens across the world but because other countries have got so many other problems that it's not even recognised? 
Yeah, I, I think you've hit the nail on the head there. So I do not think this is a Western disease. But the data simply aren't there, so we don't know. What are some of the biggest challenges for you and for this study at the moment? It can be a real struggle to get funding for research in this field. So what we're trying to do is figure out the long-term sustainability of our biobank bio projects. Because what we don't want to do is collect all these precious samples and have them sit in tanks in perpetuity. We want to have an active biobank that is openly receiving and sending out samples so that researchers around the world can have access to the samples and can conduct their studies on them using their particular techniques that they're expert in. Is the difficulty in funding mainly because potential funders don't see it as a sexy disease or that the people affected by it don't outwardly show symptoms of, of this disease? I think that there could be more attention given to this disease if there were greater advocacy. But the unfortunate thing is that the people who are sickest with this disease do not have the strength to advocate for themselves. One thing we're trying to do with our research is ensure that severely affected participants are included. This group is historically under-researched and neglected in studies. This is because they're simply difficult to access. About one quarter of people are severely affected with this disease. And it's important to bear in mind because these people are hidden in darkened rooms uh, in their homes and they're not, a, they're not able to participate in society, and they very often have extremely low quality of life. What is your overall hope from the study and the biobank? My hope is that we can give a neglected disease the attention it deserves and to help pave the way forward for doing ethical, high-quality research on well-characterized cases and hopefully find biomarkers and potential treatments or even a cure. That was Erin Bowman. You can find out more about the Biobank project and how to support it by visiting lshtm.ac.uk forward slash MECFS. As always, there are extended versions of all the interviews from this month's podcast on the school's website. Next month, we'll have more of the latest research and news from the school. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.